Good morning. Good morning. Thank you to Bruce and Pam for doing the music for us today. If you would like to turn to Exodus chapter 14. And uh, I'd like to say with, with, with recording, you know, doing the sermon twice, I don't, I'm certainly happy to do that. Uh, although for me, the one difference is I feel like the level between the two is never quite the same. Like my first week, I, the first week back, I came in in the morning, recorded the sermon for the video, I thought, wow, that was great. And then I did it live, and I thought, eh. And then the following week, I recorded the sermon, and I thought, and like that. But then in church, I liked it a lot more. So I feel like it's always, uh, for my own preferences, one or the other. Um, but, but happy to do that. And, um, yeah, I agree, with what the, I agree with what Doug said. I think it's great that we're going to continue recording those, especially for people who, because of health issues, haven't been joining us. You know, it'd be tough to start doing video and then take that away uh, now that we're starting to meet again. And same thing if any of us are ever away for a weekend or, um, or ill for a weekend and just not here. Um, I, think, I think we all agree it's better to, to be able to watch something than just to listen to it. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, I'm excited to be back with all of you for our, our fifth Sunday back in person. And uh, again, I know uh, for all of us, it's definitely a joy to be back in person, and it is for me as well. So Exodus chapter 14, I'm going to be looking at verses 5 through 31 this morning. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth, in front of Baal Zephron. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that they have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, 
who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and they lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariots, wheels, so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when its morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you again in a spirit of praise and rejoicing. Lord, we continue to pray for our nation and all of the division that we face. Let us continue to honor you with our lives, our thoughts, our deeds. Let us live as living sacrifices to you, O Lord. We pray that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. forgot to mention this. Now that restaurants are starting to open up more and more, if anybody ever wants to grab coffee or lunch or breakfast, um, grab a meal, I'm certainly more than happy to do that. I would love to do that. love to just uh, visit with people and, and enjoy good food and good conversation. So uh, certainly don't hesitate to ask if, if anybody would like to. I know for a lot of us, we've had a few months of not being able to have as much interaction. So... Happy to. I uh, decided to switch things up this morning. We've been going through the Gospel of John. I hope that it's been edifying to us all. I know for me it has been. I, I love John's Gospel. It's a relatively long book. And the way how we're going verse by verse through John. Uh, last week was actually our 25th sermon from John's Gospel. And we're roughly a quarter of the way through the Gospel of John. I don't expect us to take a hundred weeks to do it, uh, but it just it takes time, you know, if we're going to do it thoroughly. And so every once in a while, I like to call an audible and um, and do something else. I think it's good to uh, get familiarity with with the whole counsel of God's word. And over the last couple of weeks, I've made several references to Exodus, and so I thought it'd be good to look at at where it begins the the event where the Israelites cross the Red Sea and. Uh, such a powerful passage. I love the Exodus. I love the whole event. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to share and, and discuss this passage this morning. Um, I would say that the Exodus event in the Old Testament is right up there with creation itself, the fall, God's covenant with Abraham, and the Exodus as being perhaps the four most significant things that happen in the Old Testament. For the rest of the Old Testament, after Exodus, it is continually referring back to the Exodus and the work of redemption which God had done for the Israelites. And so we're going to make three points this morning. As we begin this study in Exodus, our first scene will be studying is the beginning of Exodus, when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and miraculously led them across the sea. And so what we're going to do with our time this morning is to see how God freed the Israelites from slavery, how he led them across the water, and then we're going to look at this event as a picture of the gospel. And the main idea that I want to make this morning is that God delivers his people from slavery to freedom. First part, God frees the Israelites from slavery. As I mentioned, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And as I begin this morning, I have a question. Why were they in Egypt? Biblically, do you know why the Israelites were in Egypt? They were there because in Genesis 15, God said that his people would be in a foreign land. In Genesis chapter 12, God made his covenant promise with Abraham, blessings, offspring, and land. Then in Genesis 15, God restates the covenant and the promises and elaborates on the covenant. And there's more of an emphasis on the land. And it is in that context that God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God put them in Egypt. The book of Genesis ends with the story of Joseph, a beloved story in the Bible. Joseph is betrayed by his own brothers and enslaved in Egypt. But With a God-given ability to prophesy and interpret dreams, he's able to foretell a time of abundance and a time of famine in Egypt. His dreams save Egypt because they're able to prepare for the famine. Joseph's brothers don't have access to Joseph, though, and they're struggling when the famine comes. In spite of their betrayal of their brother, Joseph was in a position to save them, too. And he's reunited with his brothers who had gone against him. We oftentimes look at that story as pointing to how God works all things for good. How God works evil for good. It is that, but it's also more than that. It's what brings Israel into Egypt. The book of Exodus begins. It's centuries later. And the Egyptian pharaohs had become paranoid at the growth of the Israelites, and they had enslaved the people. In Exodus 2, God acts on the promise that he had made to Abraham. We see the birth of Moses, who was called upon by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But there's a problem. Pharaoh won't let the Israelites leave. And so the Lord brings a series of plagues on the Egyptians for not allowing the Israelites to leave. Basically, they lived through this year. 
Some of you might have heard in the news that there's a dust storm that is supposed to make landfall in America. I don't know if it has already. From Africa into America. I saw a story last week about there are parts of the world that are having actual, like, plagues of locusts right now. And obviously everything we've had with the pandemic is just, it's a crazy year. So in Exodus, the first plague is turning the Nile red. Hitting them in the very lifeblood of their economy. The ancient Egyptians, like other societies at the time, believed in many gods. They had gods for every important area of life. And so part of what the plagues do is it shows the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods before the Lord God. And obviously they're powerless because they don't exist. The second plague is a plague of frogs. The Egyptians actually had a fertility goddess who looked like a frog. There, was, there were plagues on cattle and livestock. The Egyptians had a deity who was a cow and who was believed to be an intermediary between people and the Egyptian gods. There was a plague where boils broke out on people's skin. The Egyptians believed in gods of medicine and health. Isis, who was one of the major Egyptian goddesses, was believed to be a healer goddess. Hail rained from the sky and killed the crops. Egypt had deities for the skies and for the crops. Plagues of darkness, the Egyptians worshipped the sun god. And throughout all of these plagues, it's just destroying life for the Egyptians. But the Lord ultimately restores order after each plague. Again, showing his dominion and power. But throughout these plagues, these various warnings, Pharaoh continues to oppose God. He doesn't free the Israelites. So again, these plagues are a battle between the fake Egyptian gods and the Lord God. And they're also a battle between Pharaoh, who is the anti-God, and the Lord. Pharaoh is the leader of Egypt, and throughout the plagues, he continues putting himself in direct opposition to the Lord. It's interesting in our society because so many people want to act like it doesn't matter really what you believe about God. Perhaps you've heard people say things like, all roads lead to God. Sometimes people say things like, all religions are teaching basically the same thing. All religions are basically just saying that we should love people. All religions are basically talking about how God is love. Not all religions teach that, however. Love was not the central aspect of Egyptian religion. Many pagan religions did not believe in loving gods. Religions like Buddhism don't necessarily require you to believe in God at all to be a Buddhist. To value a loving God is to want the true Lord God. He is true. He is real. He is mighty, he is good, and he is loving. When people say that all religions basically are just teaching about love, I think really what that is is an ignorance about comparative religion and assuming that all the other religions in the world look at things like Christianity. And that's not the case. To want to pursue anything else but the Lord is to pursue falsity. To want to bow down to any other god is worthless because any other god will do just as much for you as the Egyptian gods, 
which is to say nothing. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He wants people to believe in him. And the plagues with the Lord showing his dominion over nature and over the non-existent gods of Egypt does not show that all roads lead to God or just pursue whatever you want to believe. It doesn't teach that at all. This is the Lord. Follow and serve and trust and love him alone. After all the plagues, God explains the ultimate and final plague that he will bring upon the Egyptians. Exodus 11, 4 through 6. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. God is going to strike dead the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. That happens in Exodus 12. The Israelites are spared in an event that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Passover, when they are literally passed over. A mighty work of God. Even life and death are under the dominion of the Lord. For Passover, the Lord gave the Israelites instructions for how to celebrate and commemorate the work that God had done in redeeming his people from slavery. I mentioned before that the Passover was a, it included a feast of commemoration for what God had done. And it was something that the Israelites would go on to observe every year. So after everything had happened, all the plagues, the firstborn struck down. In Exodus 12, 29, Pharaoh calls Moses and his brother Aaron and tells them finally to leave Egypt. And so the Israelites quickly make preparations to escape. And with the Exodus, we'll pick up things in chapter 14 in our main text this morning. And that'll bring us to our second point, the actual event where the Israelites cross the Red Sea. The Israelites are on their journey. They're still in Egypt. After all that has happened, after all that has happened to Pharaoh, he decides to change his mind and to pursue the Israelites, beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. After all that has happened, Pharaoh decides to pursue the Israelites. We see supreme pride and arrogance on display. God has continually shown his supremacy, and Pharaoh won't accept it. Now, Egypt had a well-equipped and well-trained army. They have chariots, which was the great military technology of the day. The Israelites are unarmed. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped by the sea at Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. 
I think of the movie The Ten Commandments, and it actually does a good job of, of capturing the drama. The Egyptians are in pursuit of the Israelites. And with all that God has done for Israel, how do they respond? Do they respond in confidence and faith and trust in the Lord? Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? The Israelites see the Egyptians coming towards them, and they're scared. They ask if he's brought them into the desert to die. It's the first time in the wilderness journeys that the Israelites will complain about the Lord and his goodness towards them. It's the first time, but it won't be the last. They so quickly lose confidence in what the Lord can do. It can be easy to be critical of that. But it's easy, it's tempting to lose sight of God when you have an army coming towards you. It's tempting to lose sight of God when a situation seems hopeless. It's easy to lose sight of the big picture of what God is doing, easy to forget what God has done, easy to forget what God has promised. Moses gives them a powerful word, a verse we quoted last week, Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. What a great word that is from Moses. Fear not, the most commonly given command in the Bible. God has promised where he was bringing the Israelites. In Exodus 3.17, the Lord says to Moses, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the land which God long before had promised to Abraham and which he reminded to Moses. And he promises it again in Exodus 6.6, Exodus 6.8. And after all the plagues, all the wonders that God has done, the Passover, where the firstborn of all the Egyptians have died. God spared the Israelites. And after all of that, at the beginning of Exodus 13, verses 3 to 5, the Israelites are told, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Again, it references the Lord's deliverance and the Lord's promise of the land. God delivers his people from slavery to freedom. God's promises are trustworthy. And yet, the Israelites fall into fear. The Israelites were in dire circumstances in the eyes of the world. I think all of us would be tempted to be fearful too. 
but they had the promise of the Lord. I think fear, stress, worry, anxiety are extremely common for us in our society. But I feel like so many of the fears that we have are not necessarily always even about life and death situations. We still often fear things where we're not really in any imminent danger. We so often live in our own minds, dwell on situations and fears. I can be terrible about this, by the way. I don't want to judge you or anyone else who struggles with this. I'm an overthinker. I know that I play too much of the worst-case scenario game. And I'll just play that game. I think sometimes I could be the world champion of it. But the problem is that when we do that, and I know some of us might struggle with that more than others, but sometimes we can really go to some irrational places with our fears, to extremes that aren't going to happen, such as when the Israelites are facing the sea and they question if God brought them to that place just to kill them there. Of course not. I'm not saying that we need to be in denial in the times where we're fearful. I'm not saying we need to be stoic. I'm not saying we need to pretend that we're not struggling or in fear or stress or worry in the times where we are. I talked about this a few weeks ago, how we can't bury our emotions. We need to keep an open and honest dialogue with God. But in the face of fear, let us respond in gratitude to God for his goodness. And in the face of fear, let us remind ourselves of what is true about God and what he has promised. It can be tempting in the face of fear to imagine how terribly things will go. Everything goes wrong. It's all bad. And that type of worry is not productive. It robs us of joy. It wastes time. And it distracts us from knowing the goodness of our God. God is a good and loving God who has a good plan for his people and his world. And he had a good plan for Israel. Let us respond with gratitude, faith, and trust in the Lord in the times when we're fearful. The Israelites made a mistake when they jumped to the worst case scenario and lost sight of what God had promised them. Moses says, stand firm. It's a phrase that appears several places in the Bible, especially in Paul's letters. In this instance, what it seems to be saying is, stand still. Stand and watch. Look and see. Especially as Moses continues his thought. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God was with them. They didn't have to perfectly understand everything. They didn't have to have control over everything. I think, again, I think that's a temptation we can face. But let us look at the Lord and what he is doing. And at what he has done. 
in our lives, in our families, in our church. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Go forward. There were only two directions to go. Towards the army or towards the water. It's a miracle that they couldn't possibly have imagined. How could they? It was something that has never been done before or since. Verses 16 to 18 preview what God is specifically going to do. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God is leading his people. And the Egyptians are going to follow, but it won't go well for them. God delivers his people from slavery to freedom. Uh, Continuing verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God had been leading the Israelites by a pillar of fire. He had been directing them. But was also protecting them. And it says that the, uh, that the pillar moved before Israel. But then in verse 20, it also says that it came between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Something that there was some sort of darkness or fog around the Egyptians, which temporarily prevented them from following the Israelites. We don't know for sure, but somehow supernaturally, the Israelites were protected. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The waters part. Once again, I think that the mental image, which we probably most prominently have of the sea parting, comes from Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. It's not Moses who does that ultimately. It is God literally parting the waters for his people. Verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What must that have been like for the Israelites? All of the miracles that God had done, being brought into the desert, And now they're walking on dry ground with the parted waters of the sea on either side of them. Imagine that for a moment. They have been given an incredible promise. And here it happens. God delivers his people from slavery to freedom. The Israelites make it across safely, but the Egyptians start pursuing them. They're no longer spiritually, supernaturally prohibited. Verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. It's ironic. The wheels of the Egyptian chariots are getting clogged. The chariot, their greatest symbol of military strength, becomes their weakness. The soldiers of Pharaoh want to turn back. They say that God is against them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. God had parted the waters, and now the sea is going to be closed back up. Verse 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. In verse 30, the story ends. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The Lord delivers his people from slavery to freedom. The Egyptian army, the military superpower of that day, is defeated without Israel having to fight a war. The Israelites are totally and finally and forever freed of the Egyptians. And that brings us to our third point, that we see the gospel in this story. For the Israelites, God is using a miracle as an instrument of his grace. The Egyptians had been evil. They had not submitted to God. They had persecuted and oppressed the people of God. The Israelites. And so the miraculous event God used for the redemption of Israel, he used for the downfall of Pharaoh and for the judgment of Egypt. Every person is ultimately going to bring glory to God. Either you will bring him glory through an example of his grace through the gospel, or you will bring him glory as a righteous judge. And that is the beginning of Israel's exodus. God acting in mighty ways to redeem his people and fulfilling his promises. And as I said, there are a number of parallels between this and the gospel. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. We were enslaved to sin and Christ redeemed us. The Israelites complain and rebel. That'll be a continual theme as we continue to struggle and rebel and sin. But for the person who has faith, Jesus continues to be faithful. God redeemed Israel to bring them to the promised land. And God is bringing us into a new promised land, a new heaven and a new earth. Both the Exodus and the new covenant of the gospel are commemorated with meals. 
The Passover meal, celebrated annually as a reminder of God's deliverance and the exodus. With the gospel, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, which is a reminder of Jesus' body, which was broken for our sins, and his blood, which was shed for our sins. Exodus was in the fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham for the land and for the deliverance from slavery. The gospel is a fulfillment of God's promise of providing a Messiah, a king from the Davidic line, a perfect and spotless lamb to be sacrificed, and of giving his spirit to those who have faith. In both stories, we see victory in a place where there appeared to be defeat. Israel was caught between the army and the sea. It seemed that there was no way out. In the gospel, when Jesus died on the cross, it looked like that was the end of Jesus' ministry. It appeared that he had been defeated. And to piggyback off that idea, both the, both the Exodus and the gospel was entirely a work of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. All of the judgments, all of the miracles that he worked against the Egyptians, leading the Israelites into the desert through the pillar of light, parting the waters of the Red Sea, all of that was what God had done. And in the gospel, we again see something that is entirely a work of the Lord, redeeming his people from sin, entirely through the work of Christ. The Exodus and the gospel are both stories of intervening in a situation where there was no hope. Egypt and then the Israelites between the Egyptian army and the sea and we who were dead in sin and hopeless apart from Christ. Both events are undeniable, indisputable, irrefutable, unimpeachable proof of God's love. God loved Israel, and God loves you. God loved you so much, God loves the world so much, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God shows his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of our goodness or worthiness, but because of God's goodness. And what he calls us to do is to believe in him and trust in him and to believe in his gospel and the salvation that he offers. Salvation that we could not earn or deserve, but he freely gives to all who believe in his son. Do you believe? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your goodness and grace. Lord, we thank you that you have given us reason to hope and to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.